0: I'm sure you have heard it said often that actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. And it's a saying that indicates that what we do, how we live this life, speaks volumes more than what comes out of our mouth. And so we know this saying, and so we apply it to our Christian life. We do our best to be Christ-like in all that we do with the hopes that our actions speak louder than words to the community that that does not know Jesus. But sometimes and somehow our actions, especially to others, don't seem to make an impact to a lost world. Why? Somehow our actions do not really compel others to want to find out more about Jesus Christ and this faith which compels us to action. Why is this so? I believe, although we have very good intentions, and a lot of us do good things and good works, the reality is what we do is not really helpful. It's not helpful actions. We don't really help the person in their need. The action that we do is out of our own convenience, out of our own ability and capacity up to that point. No wonder all the actions we exhibit often do not draw others to Christ. There is nothing unique in what we do. So, we want to explore this morning the type of helpful action that indeed not only speaks louder than a word, but shouts it out as we continue our sermon series this morning entitled Imperfect, where we want to show imperfect people in our spheres of influence that they can be made perfect in christ just as we who are imperfect are made perfect in christ turn with me in your bibles this morning to the gospel of luke chapter 10 as we take a look at verses 25 to 37 the third gospel luke chapter 10 verse 25 to 37 and i want to encourage and admonish you to bring your bibles or to download a bible app uh, so that you can follow along in the text if you don't have money to buy a bible our church has set aside funds to buy you a very nice Bible because we want you to look into the Word of God. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, a very familiar passage, the story of the Good Samaritan. Look at me as I read verse 25 to 28. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So the man answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. And so what we have here is an expert teacher of the Jewish law asking Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life what does he have to do to inherit eternal life to have it and jesus instead of answering it explicitly he threw the question back at this expert of the jewish law and asked him what does the old testament teach what does the old testament say to answer that question the expert of the law answered that one should love god with their entire being and love his neighbor as one would love himself And Jesus answers and acknowledges that that man has answered well. But not only should he know the law, verse 28, he had to live it out as well. And Jesus knew that no one could live perfectly the law's standards. And thus would fall short of obtaining eternal life. The law does not save. Our good works cannot save us. Jesus was going to show this man his deficiency. You see, Jesus knew that most all people, especially of the Jewish religious class, they knew the demands of God, just like you know the principles and the precepts of the Scriptures. But now, like then, we may know it, but we don't live it out. And it sounds a lot like modern-day believers today. Jesus knew that those religious leaders in the ruling class knew the law, but they weren't living it out. And this Jewish lawyer knew that Jesus was right. But he could not fully live out the implications of the Old Testament law. And so what does he do? He does what many of us do. He tries to limit the law's effect and demands. And so he asks the question in verse 29. Look with me. But he, note this, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He wants Jesus to explain to him, to set for him the outside limits of who he was obliged to help. Here the word neighbor means someone who is near. And as one commentator writes, the Jews interpreted the word in a limited sense to mean only a fellow Jew or someone in the same religious community. They specifically excluded Samaritans and foreigners from this category. So this man is asking Jesus, Who am I compelled to love? Who am I compelled to be kind to? Who am I obligated and obliged to help? Give me the limits, Jesus, so that I can live it out and try to gain eternal life by living a religious life. And we often do that. As we study the Scriptures, as we know what Jesus desires for us in our life, we ask ourselves the question, what is the least amount I need to do and still be qualified or fit and live out the principles, right? We say, what is the minimum? What is the basic thing I need to do so that I can still say and be spiritually prideful that I have lived out the precepts of scriptures? We play this game all the time. We play the game where we say, Lord, How close can I get to the edge without falling off? How far can I push the envelopes before I really sin? It's like my kids. We we begin this when we're young. When I ask my kids, children, have you eaten all of your food? They say, yes, Daddy, we've eaten everything on our plates. And if you were to examine their plates, their plates are wiped clean. But if you were to look further, you would see that all the vegetables and the foods they don't like are pushed off the plate. And therefore, they can say, Dad, Mom, we've eaten everything on our plate. Or we work towards the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. When Cindy and I leave for a social obligation in the evening, we often tell our children, Please be kind to each other. And they tell us, Yes, Daddy, Mommy, we will treat each other nicely, we will be kind. And then when we return, we come on to find often the youngest girl, the youngest one, crying that her two older brothers were not nice to her. And so we would call the boys over and ask why they weren't nice to their little sister. And they would, in exasperation, tell us, but we were kind to her. We didn't yell at her. We didn't hit her. We just ignored her. And we kicked her out of our room. But we were kind. As so if kindness is simply not yelling or hitting We do that as children, we do that as adults. We justify in our minds the limits of what the least we can do so that we can comply with God's principles. And this is exactly what this man was doing. He was trying to limit the people whom he was obliged to help under Jewish law. Now Jesus would reply to him, not with words, but instead he answered him with a story. A parable. One of his most well-known, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story well, but let's take a look and examine it again. Look at verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. In the story, we find that the man was traveling along the Jerusalem Jericho Road, 17 miles between both cities, and he was robbed. Not only was he robbed, he was beaten pretty severely, his clothes were taken, and he was left for dead. Now I just want to stop here, and I want to ask you honestly, and you answer silently in your heart, would you help this person not knowing what I'm sure you know, that eventually a Samaritan will come and help him. But at this point, would you stop what you were doing if you came across this man and would you render aid? This is the challenging question not only Jesus posed to this religious lawyer, but he poses to us as well. Who is our neighbor? What is the obligation we have to someone like this? If we were to answer this honestly, Most of us would not stop and render aid because it would be very messy and we were all very busy. Who is our neighbor? The story can stop here and already challenge us for how we are to live. A few weeks ago, Cindy and I were on EDSA. That's a highway going to Makati for a wedding reception. I was in my suit and tie and Cindy was in a beautiful dress. And we were, of course, stuck in traffic. Traffic was moving very slowly. We noticed as uh, motorcycles were zooming past us, swerving between the cars, and a particular motorcycle was rather aggressive, swerving between the cars because of the heavy traffic. And before our eyes, he clipped one of the cars, and he was thrown from his motorcycle, and he hit the pavement pretty hard as his motorcycle also flung in the other direction. It happened about two cars in front of us, And and we were staring in disbelief, a a bit shaken, especially as we saw the cyclist laying motionless on the road as his bike was far away. We watched for five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 minutes. Not a single person got out of their car to render aid or to assist him. We could not believe it. People actually moved their car, some very close to driving over him, Just to get around There were hundreds of people If you know that intersection near Pioneer Where hundreds of people were waiting to get on the bus And they all saw what happened And not a single one of them ran over To render aid At this point Having grown up in the U.S. where everyone renders aid I I Commented to my wife I can't believe this country So many people saw this accident And no one even came to help This man My wife just looked at me with one of those looks where she doesn't have to say anything, but that look said to me, Did you go and help? Did you? Ouch, kid right here. So it speaks to me as well. And so I began to assess why I didn't help. Part of me inside was saying, Well, I'm in a suit and tie. The other people, they aren't dressed so nicely, they're not going to an event. They don't have to give the opening prayer at the reception. They can help. Then I thought how ridiculous that must have sounded. And so I began to blame the motorcyclist. Serves him right for recklessly swerving back and forth between the cars. I'm sure you've thought about that, right? Serves him right. They deserve to be in that accident. We all do this. We all throw the blame to someone else. And if we were to read this story, and I just challenge you, what would you do? Most of us would say, well, you know what? This man shouldn't have been traveling by himself. Doesn't he know that that road from Jericho to Jerusalem and back is a very dangerous road? Where's his companion? He should have known that there are many robbers. He should have walked this, perhaps, in the bright of daylight. should have been more careful. What would you do? I want you to notice that there are almost no words in this entire parable until the very end because the focus is on the action. What does the action look like? Verse 31 to 32. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. And passed by on the other side Two people happened to journey On the same road from Jerusalem to Jericho And saw this severely injured man The first, verse 31, was a priest Coming from Jerusalem Perhaps he had just finished Performing his priestly duties Before God in in the temple And he was going home For sure this priest would render aid This was the one who would render aid for sure It was in his job description as a priest to help others. He was a man who read and taught and knew the Word of God. And he would know that the Word of God tells us that we are to show compassion to others. This is a man who read and taught and knew the Bible. And he would know for sure that we are to render help to the helpless. Just like we know what the Word of God says. But notice in verse 31 that even though it was by chance that he stumbled upon this man upon this man, and saw him, the Bible tells us he does nothing. In fact, the Bible tells us, as Jesus tells his story, he walks as far away from this man as possible on the road and simply walks by. A second man comes by and the Bible tells us he is a Levite. He was part of a tribe that was uniquely called by God to serve others. The tribe of Levi was set apart, one from the twelve, to serve God by serving the people of Israel. Perhaps he was on his way back from Jerusalem, also having performed his job and was heading back home. But he was off the clock. It was off hours for him. And even though his occupation was to serve Why would he serve this man he was off hours But see how jesus describes his action he saw the body of the injured He even looked that's what the bible says he assessed the situation without rendering help Perhaps he even kicked the man. I don't know to see was if he was still alive And he was calculating in his mind The worth of helping this man But the Bible tells us in verse 32, he did nothing, and he walked away. They both exhibited action. Both saw, one even looked closer, examining the injured man, but both did nothing. Their action was an action of concern, but they didn't take it any further. When one sees a need and does nothing, that is, the wrong type of action. They knew there was a problem. They knew that this man needed help. They knew that this man needed medical help and assistance to get to the next town. They also knew that it would be very messy if they got involved. You see, what they demonstrated was the action of inaction. The action of doing nothing. Do you know what happens when you don't do anything? Nothing happens. That is the result of doing nothing. Nothing happens. When you see a piece of trash on the church ground and you don't pick it up, you know what happens? It stays there. When you say you want to get to church on time but you don't make the effort to do so, you know what happens? You'll still be late. It doesn't matter how much you want to come on time. When you say you want to evangelize to someone and you don't do it, you know what is the result? They don't hear the gospel. When you wish to have a life that is changed and transformed, but you don't do anything to start changing, you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. And that's the problem. You see, for many Christians, they believe that the action of seeing the problem and even assessing it and even knowing what to do is good enough without actually implementing the action that is needed. You see, if you're a believer who simply comes to church hears about a problem know that you have a problem even knows what to do to solve this problem but you don't do anything about it then you are no better than the priest or the Levite and in this story we would condemn them we would say how heartless what jerks what type of people are this that won't help this poor man we are no better than them It isn't good action unless it is helpful action, as the Samaritan will show. It isn't good action unless it is helpful action. I remember the story told by David DeWitt. He tells the story of uh, a newly appointed pastor standing in his study window in the church weeping, As he overlooked the inner city of which he pastored And the tragic conditions that befell that city A lay leader walked in trying to console him And he said to him, don't worry pastor After you've been here a while You'll get used to those tragic conditions To which the crying minister responded to the lay leader Yes, I know That's why I'm crying That's the problem of a lot of believers We have been desensitized We have been desensitized To the needs of those In our spheres of influence The people we come in contact with every day And so a lot of believers Have come to the notion As long as I come to church and find out That I'm a sinner And yeah, I need to change And I need to help others But I don't actually do anything Then that is the problem of action Of inaction It's not good enough it's not helpful action. The Samaritan will display the action that Jesus desires. And from it, we can find out three principles of that type of action that will compel the world to look further at what compelled us to reach out to them. Let's take a look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus identifies this third traveler's ethnicity. He was a Samaritan. A Samaritan was of mixed race, not not a pure-blooded Jew, but a group of people because of their mixed ethnicity that was hated by the pure-blooded Jewish people at that time. Of course, because of the racial prejudice the Samaritans felt, They too had a hatred for the Jewish people. And so, like the previous two travelers, this Samaritan was coming along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he saw this man. And look what happens, unlike the first two. Would you circle this phrase in your Bibles? He had compassion. Underline it. The difference between the first two and him is that he had compassion. We are moved to helpful action when we are moved with compassion. Note that. We are moved to helpful action when we are moved with compassion. And that's number one if you're taking notes. The motive of helpful action. What is the motive? The motive of helpful action is compassion. If compassion is not there, we will not be spurred to move, to act. You see, if your motive to help someone is so that you can be the hero or that you can be seen and be applauded by others or simply that your motive is so that you can feel good, then the action that you employ will not be helpful. Perhaps I can conjecture that in this story, number one and number two didn't help the injured traveler because there was no crowd watching them. There was no one to cheer them on as the hero, even though it was in their job description to render aid to others. But there was no one to see, and therefore it was not worth their while. If you are motivated with compassion, you will be motivated to action. Your compassion which spurs you on to action, helpful action, is what will stun the world. Because this is a world today that has very little compassion. We have been desensitized with the realities of life that very few people offer up any sort of compassion. But when the world sees a motivation of compassion without drawing attention to yourself, that is what will compel them to want to search more about what compels you to action. My American friends were shocked and, in fact, horrified when they found out that the aid that was delivered by the Americans after the devastating typhoon on Doi was slow in being distributed to those who were in need because the local politicians, as has been verified by the news were taking the aid and repackaging repackaging them in plastic bags that had their names and their pictures printed on it. Imagine that. Not giving aid when they needed it, delaying it just so that they can put their names and their pictures on it. I think I learned this word. It's something called epal. It's sad that we have a word for this in the Tagalog language. That one would desire to have their smiling faces on an ambulance, on a bridge. One must question what is their motivation. You see, if the motivation is not out of compassion, then one does not really help. But if one's motivation is compassion... And it doesn't matter whether they get glory or not. What is important is that the one who needs help has gotten it. The biblical standard of helpful action is one where the motive is foundationed on compassion. Look at verse 34. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he said on his own animal... Brought him to an inn and took care of him. Look what else a Samaritan does. The Samaritan gives him medical attention, probably getting blood all over himself as he cleaned the wound of this injured man. I remember a story told of a Sunday school teacher who was telling the story of the Good Samaritan to her class of four or five year olds. She was making it as vivid as possible to keep the children's interest in her story. And so she asks the class, "If you saw a person lying on the roadside, all wounded and bleeding, what would you do?" A thoughtful little girl broke the hushed silence when she raised her hand and she told the teacher, "Teacher, I think if I saw that, I think I'd throw up." This man didn't throw up. This man got his hands dirty. Look what verse thirty-four says: He used expensive oil and wine to wash and disinfect the wound. In fact, he put this wounded man on his own donkey. Donkeys are used to carry things. And so this Samaritan was using this donkey to carry things. Where would he put these things? He would have to carry it himself. Did you ever think about that? To put this injured man on his donkey, he would have to take what was on the donkey and put it on himself. He brought him to a local inn, and the Bible tells us he took care of him. I want you to see something here in verse 34. I want you to see the consequences of helpful action. What is the consequence? There is a consequence when you help someone, and the consequence is sacrifice. Number two, the consequence of helpful action is sacrifice. When you help others, it's not so that you can feel better. It, in fact, it will make you feel worse. It'll inconvenience you. Action that is truly helpful will be sacrificial. And in this story, you see that sacrifice is evidence in at least two ways. One is that it is an inconvenience; it diverts this man from his journey, from his schedule. And the other sacrifice is that it was costly—his oil and his wine. We don't know what he was using it for, but it was expensive especially when you're using it to disinfect bloody wounds. Now, you know, if I'm telling this story, I want to embellish this point. I would add, if I were telling this parable, that this man had a major appointment he had to get to in Jericho, but he gave it up for the sake of this injured man. I would say something like, and perhaps... This Samaritan was actually scared of blood, but he got over his fear to help this injured man. Or I could make up the fact that this oil and this wine was the last thing of value that he owned, but he was willing to give up his very best to clean the wounds of this injured man. Wouldn't that be compelling? Wouldn't that make the Samaritan more of a hero? But did you notice that Jesus doesn't mention any of this? Because it doesn't matter. What is important is not how the Samaritan is inconvenienced. What is important is that the one who needed help was helped. Do you get that? What is important is that the one who needed help was helped not how the Samaritan was inconvenienced. It's not about how much you sacrificed. It's whether that person was rendered aid or not. You see, the world is looking for sacrificial action. The world sees a lot of men and women helping others. But we're desensitized because most, of, more often than not, they do it out of a selfish motive. Not everyone. But in our desire to be the hero, to have people applaud us, to be recognized for what we do, and recognition is right in certain circumstances. But because we focus on those things, what compels the world to want to know more about what compelled us to do it is when they see that men and women who are in need are actually being helped. And where the one who is helping has stepped back to not draw attention to themselves. Henry Nowen once said, What you see and like to see is cure and change. But what we do not see and do not want to see is care. We do not want to see the participation in the pain. We do not want to see the solidarity in the suffering. We do not want to see the sharing in the experience of brokenness. And still, cure without care is as dehumanizing as a gift given with a cold heart. We don't like the messiness of helping others. We don't like the consequences When we are called into action. But there is a consequence, and that consequence is that it requires sacrifice on our part. You know, the story changes. If I were to add perhaps these facts that are not in the story, what have I told you? And the Samaritan said to the hurt man, Please get up. I'm trying to help you, you're making no effort. What if the Samaritan says to the man, please don't get your blood all over my donkey? Or what if the Samaritan said, well, we'll take care of your wounds, but not now. Don't worry, the blood has dried up. Or what if it was told that the Samaritan, as they were journeying to Jericho, the Samaritan kept saying to the man, remember, I'm doing you a favor. And remember, when I need help, I need you to help me. We do that a lot, don't we? We often want to remind people we're helping them. Do you remember that time when I helped you? Hint, hint, help me back. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? I think part of the reason is we often count the cost of helping others. We forget that when we really want to help others, it must be sacrificial. Sacrificial. And in verse 34, we see that this Samaritan doesn't look to see what he can get out of it. Simply out of the compassion of his heart, he went and he bandaged his wounds, took out what was precious to him as an antiseptic for the wounds, carried on the burden that was on the donkey so that that man could sit on an animal and brought him to a place where he could get rest. If that were to happen today in the modern world, we would all be in shock. Why? Because here we see a man whose actions were sacrificial on his part. Verse 35. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. In this parable, the Samaritan stays the night in the same inn as the now recuperating man and makes provision for this man to be fully nursed back to health. This is unheard of. If any of us encounter something like this, we would be patting ourselves on the back saying, we've done a pretty good job. We've taken him to the hospital. How many of us would even pay the hospital bill of someone we don't even know. If that were to happen today, that would stun the world. Why? Because in verse 35, it shows the extent of helpful action, number three. The extent of helpful action is going the extra mile, going above and beyond what is normally expected. That is the extent of helpful action, The Samaritan doesn't know this man, doesn't owe him anything, doesn't want anything. He just wants to help, and help he does going the extra mile above and beyond. You see, if the world hears about something like this, it will make a mark in their hearts. It will stun them. It will compel them to want to see what compels someone like the Samaritan to do what he does because this is not normal. That is the type of action that speaks louder than words. That is the type of action that screams forth the faith that we have. Do we go the extra mile if we're going to help someone? I don't know if you know the story of Carrie Drake. It was... Reported by many news agencies I heard about it on CNN Carrie Drake was on a flight uh, On United Airlines He was on a route to see his mother uh, Who was in the hospital facing her final last hours To add an extra layer of distress Drake knew that if he missed his connecting flight He would not likely see his mother before she passed after his first flight segment got delayed, Drake broke down into tears on in the plane because he knew he would miss a second flight and the chance to see his mother before she died. The flight attendants soon noticed his distraught state and asked him why he was crying and quickly found out what was wrong. Within minutes, Drake's dilemma was relayed to the captain of the plane who relayed it to United Airlines headquarters who radioed ahead to Drake's next flight and talked to the captain of that flight. What did that captain of the second leg flight do? The flight crew responded by delaying that flight's departure to make sure that Kerry Drake would get on board. As he would recount, I was like maybe 20 yards away running in the terminal when I heard the gate agent say, Mr. Drake, we've been expecting you. When Drake finally sat down on the second flight, he realized how much went into getting him onto that plane. He said, I was overcome with emotion. This was the result of many staff members working together to go above and beyond the call of duty to help this customer. And Drake was able to make it to the hospital in time to see his mother. She died that very morning, a few hours later. Drake wrote, the staff at United Airlines a very heartfelt thank you letter expressing his immense gratefulness and gratitude for a team that was willing to pull together and pull out all the stops to assist this nobody, this, this this person who wasn't even famous. As they were covering this on CNN, one commentator who they had on the show said these words, airline employees are evaluated based on their ability to keep a schedule. Airlines compete with each other on who has the best on-time departure record when the flight on this crew heard about this distraught passenger trying to make his connection they must have said to heck with it and they made the right call we remember stories like that because stories like that remind us that men and women who are truly helping others go above and beyond go the extra mile to help someone. It is these stories that stick into our hearts. It is these stories that we remember. And when you can perform acts that go beyond what is ordinary and normal, it will stun the world. It will stun those in your circles of influence because this is not normal. And it will compel them to investigate what compelled you to do it. Do we go above and beyond what is normal to extend helpful action? The parable ends, and Jesus says in verse 36 and 37, these words. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? The lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Jesus ends the parable by asking, Which of the three in the story do you think was the neighbor to this injured man? And the teacher of the law had to admit it was the Samaritan, the one who had showed mercy. And Jesus asked him to go and do the same. He was to go out and treat everyone that was a part of his community with the same compassionate action and helpful mercy. But you remember his first question? How do I obtain eternal life? You see, as much as we can try and and be like the Samaritan, we can't fully do it. We, We don't do it. And it's called sin. And Jesus knew that working towards your salvation is deficient. But he challenged this man by giving him the ideal, what needed to be done, So with the hopes that when we fail or when he failed, we will realize and he will realize that it is through Jesus who died on the cross in our place. And that our believing in him is the way one gains eternal life. God provides the solution to this problem through his son. You see, the real evidence of loving God and loving one's enemies is to show forth helpful action that is foundation on compassion, sacrifice, and going the extra mile. But when we can't do it, we remember that Jesus did it. Jesus says, go and do the same. And He exemplified it. And that's why we celebrate communion a little bit later. Actions speak loudest when they are exhibited in its truest form. You see, Jesus spoke a lot about love. He spoke about loving one another. But Jesus shouted out this truth when he was on the cross. The Bible tells us, why would Jesus save us? Why would God save us? God saves us because he was moved to compassion, as we talked about a few weeks ago. When he saw us as sheep without a shepherd. The Bible tells us he died in the cruelest way known at that time by crucifixion. But even before that, he humbled himself. He became one of us in that which we call the incarnation, which was the topic of our previous series. He humiliated himself to be one of us so that he could die the most horrible way to die on the cross beaten for our transgression, that He who knew no sin became sin for us. But you know what? In the epistles, Jesus doesn't dwell on those things. He doesn't say, look at how I died for you, how I died for you. Look what I went through. He simply wants us to know He died for us. You see, sacrificial action It's not on the person sacrificing. It's on the people who are helped. And Jesus dying on the cross, he was always about us. And he extends his help even to us today. He went above and beyond. He didn't simply die for us. When he resurrected and ascended, he made sure that we were taken care of. He sent back the Holy Spirit, God himself, to take care of us forever. And so we may not be able to exhibit a Samaritan type of care. But we can surely try because Jesus Christ did it for us. And when we celebrate communion, it is a symbolic reminder of that act to spur us into action that we can do it as well. Do we even try? deal moody tells of a story of a woman who was inviting children in her neighborhood to come to her church and she met a boy and asked him to come to church and he said thank you for the invitation but i go to this church which is very far away and the lady asked the boy why don't you go to a church closer like ours Uh, there are a lot of them Uh, they're just as good the boy says to the lady thanks you thanks for the invitation they may be good churches but they're not too good for me. She asks. why not? He says, I go far away to that church because there, they love people over there. They love people over there. How easy it is to reach people through love when they see it in action. What are the things we are doing as, as a church in your individual lives to show forth a helpful action that proclaims to the world what Christ did for us and stuns them and challenges them to dig further in what compels us to do it. Can they say of our church that this is a church full of good Samaritans, not simply men and women who render aid when there is a need, but men and women whose motivation is not about themselves, it is on compassion it is full of men and women who help because they are willing to sacrifice, not for their own glory, but so that those who are in need are help. Can this church be known as men and women who go above and beyond the extra mile to help those who are in need so that they will be shocked by what Christ can do? It's not because we don't have an example, we have an example. The example is Jesus Christ. May his example be our challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our study this morning in the very familiar passage. But it has brought even in my own heart a re questioning of some of my motivations. I pray that your word would again challenge our church to rise up and be the Samaritans we are called to be. We who have experienced your Samaritan type of love can give it to others as well. May many men and women out in our communities come to know Jesus through our actions that not only speak louder than words, they shout it out. And they shout out the name of Jesus. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.